0: Greetings to each one here this morning. It's been a real good, rich morning. It's been a blessing to be here. As we were singing that song, uh, my mind went to a time, it's probably been 15 years ago, I'm not sure. It was quite a long time. And my brother-in-law had just lost his wife. It was Martha's brother, Mervyn, uh, his wife had died of cancer. And at the viewing and funeral there, and and one of his, one of her cousins were there, and he was relating the story of how his wife had died of cancer just real recently before that. And he was, him and I were there talking, and, and he said it was on the night of the funeral, or the night before the funeral when his wife had died. It was a real stormy night, and there was a lot of clouds outside, and he was just, hurting pretty bad and, and he went into his closet and he prayed that God would allow him to see the moon or some stars just to prove that God is still real. And so he went out on the porch and there was dark billowing clouds and all of a sudden right above him the clouds parted and the most brilliant full moon shone through for just about a minute and then the clouds came back and went on. And he said that proved to him that God is real. And we sang in that song, you know, where the dark clouds were over me, now there's sunshine. Of course, in that situation, it was a moon. And, uh, and I never forgot that. Um, that brother has since remarried and has a family today. and And I assume he's doing well. Even though that he was in a, Less than ideal situation. I'm not sure they were from some old order setting in Pennsylvania. I think this brother had somehow got a hold of a a real faith and a real God that carried him through those times. This morning, what God has laid on my heart to preach about is lessons from the wilderness I was really blessed with the opening as uh, Brother Kenrick was sharing about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and traveling through the wilderness. And, and I've been studying that for quite some time and, <clears throat> and I've been just so impressed with there's so many lessons that we can learn from them as they went through the wilderness that if we apply those lessons to us today, it will help us in our walk with God. Many of us have traveled through the wilderness in our life. I don't think there's one of us here that have any age on us at all, that we have not went through something hard. We've all faced wildernesses. We all face journeys through life. We, We face changes. We find ourselves in Egypt when we really need to be in Canaan. And many times it's, we are in Egypt out of no... Choice of our own. I mean, the slaves in Egypt, the children of Israel that were slaves in Egypt, that generation, they were not the ones that moved to Egypt. And even their forefathers that moved to Egypt went to Egypt not to be slaves, but to be saved from famine. They moved to Egypt because there was food in Egypt, and Joseph told them to come and it it looked like it was a it was a it was a go deal i mean it was a it was a good deal to move to egypt and Now here four hundred years later, they ended up as slaves, no choice of their own they didn't choose to be slaves, but they found themselves in slavery. in other words, many of us find ourselves in the similar situations we find ourselves in circumstances of no choice of our own, but we find ourselves in a wilderness or in Egypt, and we know that we need to make a change. We need to go from Egypt to Canaan. And the only way to get from Egypt to Canaan is through the wilderness. You know, our journey may be a journey of health. It may be financial. It may be emotional. It may be relational. There's 101 things that we can be facing in our life. And there's a journey to go from point A to point B. And how are we going to get there? How, how do we get from Egypt to Canaan? Sometimes <clears throat> it looks too far away. It looks too impossible. And we never even want to start the journey. We just stay in Egypt because, you know, it's too hard to get there. It's, I can't get there. And so sometimes what's worse than being going through a hard journey through the wilderness is to stay in Egypt. Egypt is a, is a type of sin. Egypt is slavery. Egypt is, is a bad place to be. And God wanted them to, to leave Egypt. God wanted them to, to move to Canaan. It wasn't God's long-term plan to keep the children of Israel in Egypt. He wanted to take them out of there. <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure why why God even took them to Egypt. I do know that according to the word of God, it says that, that it wasn't quite time yet to bring judgment upon those inhabitants of Canaan. And so there was a time that God wanted to wait before he took Israel into Canaan and gave it to them. But the the worst thing that we can do if we find ourselves in Egypt is to just get an oh, poor me attitude and say, "It's, it's not my fault. And we just hunker down and say, well, I guess this is all, you know, this, I'm just here. This I have no choice of my own. And for no reason, I, I just, I can't help myself. I'm just here. When help could be right under our feet. But we reject it because we are stuck in this poor me attitude. And that we just would rather be a slave in Egypt. Or maybe we're like the children of Israel. They're in Exodus chapter four, verse twenty-nine. When Moses comes over there, and he meets with Aaron, and and they and Moses tells Aaron, "Okay, this is God visited me. God told me this is what we're supposed to do, and we are here to bring deliverance to the captives, to the slaves in Egypt. We're here to bring deliverance." And so they gathered the elders of Israel together and they shared this story that, you know, this is what God did. This is what God told us. And, and these are the wonders that God gave me to show you that this is real and, and that the days of slavery are almost over. And we're moving out of Egypt. And in verse 31, it says the elders, they bowed down in worship. They were so grateful that the days of slavery is over. And if they could have just stepped out of Egypt into Canaan that day, they would have been perfectly happy. And they were excited. And it says there that they bowed down and worshipped. They thanked God that the days of slavery were finally over. It's kind of like... When that good seed falls on the good ground, it springs up really fast. And then when the hard times come, it withers away. What did we call that this morning? Unbelief. The sin of unbelief. But then when Pharaoh, they went to tell Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh rejected the plan. And all of a sudden, these children of Israel that were happy and excited and worshiping God because of deliverance were like, Oh, now what? The children of Israel, even before they ever left Egypt, were plagued with the sin of unbelief. And that's something that they took with them all the way to Canaan. No, most of them didn't even go to Canaan. But they took them they, they, their sin of unbelief, they carried it with them all the way through the wilderness until their carcasses fell in the dirt in, in the land of the wilderness because of the sin of unbelief. The plague of unbelief. You know, faith is easy when the door is open and the, no large obstacles are in the way. And it's like Brother Kenrick said, if we could just, you know, we could see this the way it really was for the children of Israel and we could see it from our perspective and we would have been there I just so loved his illustration we could say hey this is no problem we know how this is going to end but for them it was a reality of of fright they were full of shock fear and confusion and unbelief and they here they are at the Red Sea and and here comes Pharaoh's army and we know that story and You know, I don't know how much different I would have been had I not read the book, had I not known the end of the story. Getting back to the wilderness road. The road through the wilderness is never an easy one. Getting from where we don't want to be to where we need to be is a rough road. And without faith in God... We can easily give up. No matter what wilderness we're going through, if we do not have a serious faith in God that we can stay focused, we probably won't make it. You know, the children of Israel reminded Moses many times it would have been better to die in Egypt than to come out here and starve of thirst, or or die of thirst and starve of starvation. I think one of their favorite phrases were, were there no graves in Egypt that we could have died back there? You know what? As we're going through any wilderness in in our life, if we don't quit looking back, we'll never make it to the other end. if we are ever to, to, to make it victoriously through any wilderness road that we are facing today, there's a few lessons that we could learn from the children of Israel that would greatly help us. And one of the things that we need to, the number one thing that we need to, to keep in mind is that we don't forget the I am. You know, when Moses was over there and the the little bush was burning and it didn't get consumed and, and the voice of God came and he said, you know, I want you to do this. And he said, well, I need to tell them if they say, well, who sent you? Who are you that sent me? And the voice of God said, I am that I am. And if you follow that through the book of Exodus there, there's many places where God continually reminded the children of Israel, I am the God of thy fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I am. And how many times did the children of Israel forget the I am? And all they could see is, well, we need need a God to take us back to Egypt. Aaron, Moses is up on the mountain. Aaron, would you make us a god? We need a god and a captain to lead us back into Egypt. And we look at that and we say, were they stupid or what? But you know, before we get too hard on them, how many times do we go through life and we face things and we forget the I am, the almighty the one that, that made the entire universe and holds it all in his hand. And we say, we can't trust him with this little obstacle in our life. Don't forget the I am. Lesson number two is don't lose sight of Canaan and get your eyes on the obstacles. even after they had traveled through the wilderness for a long time and they came to the banks of Jordan. I mean, they faced so many obstacles, but even when they got over there and they finally were able to look into Canaan, all they could see is the giants, the obstacles. If we're ever going to make it through the valley of the wilderness, we have to keep our eyes and focus on the goal and keep it on Canaan if we allow the our eyes to drift over here and we see this obstacle and that obstacle the first thing all we can know is the obstacle and we forget that we're supposed to really we're we're traveling from Egypt to Canaan number 1 the I am sent us the I am wants us in Canaan the I am is the one that took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand And destroyed the armies of Egypt, has fed us with manna, has gave us water out of the rocks many times, has sustained us, has kept our sandals from wearing out. And when we get to Jordan, we can only see the giants. Don't lose sight of Canaan. And then it's kind of like number three, the God who called you out of Egypt will deliver you to Canaan. We remember the I am and we keep our eyes focused on the goal will help us realize that it's not our own strength that takes us through the wilderness, but it's the hand of God. And as we trust in God and we have faith in God and we act as if we believe God is real, then God will carry us through that. Lesson number four is don't let fear and doubt destroy your faith. When the children of Israel got up there and there was Red Sea over here, there was mountains over here, there was another obstacle over here, and there was the armies of Egypt coming after them, they were so full of fear and doubt. And Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of God today. But God, God will get him honor over Pharaoh and his army. We can't let fear and doubt destroy our faith. As we go through these wildernesses, no matter what it is that you're facing, if you let the fear of the unknown, it will destroy you. It will keep you from being productive. It will keep you from working. It will keep you from conquering, it'll keep you from going on that diet, it'll keep you from whatever it is, or it'll keep you from being able to save your money to get out of debt, it'll keep you from conquering your fear of, of uh, making new friends, uh, just the list goes on and on. Fear and doubt is the biggest destroyers as we go through any wilderness or any change in our lives. If we allow the giants of fear and doubt to destroy us, it'll just totally destroy us. Number five is sin will rob you of your goals. There in Exodus 32, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and he was getting the oracles of God written in stone by the finger of God, this should have been the most glorious time. This should have been the pinnacle of their journey through the wilderness. And they said, well, I don't know what happened to Moses. He's been gone for 40 days and the clouds just covered in smoke and there must be fire up there and there must be the thing, that mountain is shaking. We don't even know if the man's alive. And they turned to sin. Number one, the sin of unbelief and then the sin of idolatry and then the sin of nakedness and partying and you can only imagine what was happening because it sounded like when Moses came back down, the people didn't even have any clothes on. I mean, it was a terrible, deplorable situation and Moses was only gone for 40 days. But you know what? A little sin will destroy your faith in God. Sin will, will cloud over that vision of the I am Sin will distract you from the vision of Canaan. Sin, if we allow sin to come into our lives as we go through the wilderness journey, we're doomed. And that's why Jesus Christ came and he became the advocate for our sin. He, we have the propitiation for our sin. We have the remedy for our sin. And brothers and sisters, if we, if we want to make it through this wilderness road alive, we're going to have to have that propitiation for our sin, the remedy for our sin. Sin will rob you of your goals. How many times have you seen someone? They had tremendous goals. They had tremendous vision. And they, they had every opportunity to become rich and famous, you might say. And for the thrill of a little bit of sin, just threw it all away. And I don't have to put an image in your mind. You can remember people. You, we all know of people that for the, for the flash of a little bit of sin and a little bit of lust or a little bit of carnal sin have thrown away great things. They've destroyed their families. They've threw away their marriage. They've lost their businesses. They've they've threw prosperity to the wind. They, they've just lost it for a handful of pottage. Sin, sin destroys. Sin is like a cancer. Okay, as we're going through this wilderness wilderness road, and we have we have. Visions and dreams. We have places we know that we want to go and we have things we want to conquer. And, and we're traveling from this point to a goal. Number six is we need to let others help us. You know, Moses was out there and the children of Israel. And Moses had brought them out of Egypt. He was the leader and there was, they were out here camping in the wilderness and he was sitting there day after day dealing with this problem, this problem and 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 this problem. He was judging all the people and helping them through this issue and that issue and this issue and that issue. And here comes his father-in-law. He says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. And Moses was doing the best. He knew how he was doing everything that he could to 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 keep this group of a million and plus people together united on the way to Canaan, and he 's given it all he 's got, but he 's doing it by himself, and his father in law comes along and says, Moses, what you're doing is not good you're going to kill yourself you're going to wear you're going to wear down you're going to not last through this this wilderness journey. you need to appoint this one to help you." And appoint this one to help you and need to appoint captains over hundreds and captains over tens and however it all goes. And he said, let them bring only the most severe cases to you, only the things they can't take care of for you, but that you need to let others help you. How many times have we gone through and we've got this vision and goal in mind, but I'm the one and I got to do it all myself. I can do this. God has told me to do this. I've seen this happen over and over in missions and ministries and all kinds of good things. People overload themselves and and they just try to do it all. They just want to be the man. They want to be the one that does the job. And that's good in a way. But I think we all have to recognize that we all have weaknesses and we all need help. Even though it's some of the best thing that Moses could have done, he could have just rose up in pride and told his father-in-law to go back home where he belongs. He said, "God told me to lead these people out here, and I'm going to take care of every problem that's out here, and I can do this." Instead of that, he bowed his heart and he said, "You know what? You're right. I'm tired. I'm almost out of energy. I've given it all I got." I think, you're, I think you've got some good counsel. And so here he appoints all these people to help him. And, for, and the road smooths out. I face that many times, even in the, the lighthouse ministry that we've been involved in in the last 10 years. I know brother Dan Mass came down there to Pikeville and he said, "Gerald, you're trying to do it all. You need to let some of that just lay and let somebody else focus on your family. Focus on you too. You can't just do You can't just do everything yourself." And we continue to face that issue. I mean, just a week ago, My son Laverne called me from, uh, our son Laverne from Bedford called and said, Dad, this and this and this is not getting done. He said, wouldn't it be better we would appoint somebody to do this and this and this? And I said, yeah, I think so. And when they moved the ministry to Pennsylvania, they said, well, what do you want? You you want this piece? You know, I said, well, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. I want to be the one taking care of this, and I want to be the one taking care of that. And it's been a load off of my shoulders to hear someone else say, you know what, there's other people that could do this and this and this. No matter how good the work, no matter how how important it is, I am not the only person that can do the important work. It's the same way in the family. It's the same way in the church, in any ministry. We need to let other people help. We need to get people involved. Number seven, we don't need to forget that God is a merciful God. God is full of mercy. Time and time again, when Israel failed and Israel miserably failed and God one time, God actually came to Moses and He said, "Step aside. I'm just going to of the, wipe them off. I'm just going to wipe them off. I'm going to destroy them. I will raise you up. I will raise up godly seed from you, and we'll just start all over. We're just going to destroy this whole mess. They're a stiff-necked people. They don't want to listen. We're just going to we're just going to start over." And Moses said, "You know what?" Maybe, maybe we should try. And it seemed like God actually said, you know, we'll have mercy. We'll have mercy again. I believe that there is no situation so hard and so rough and so rotten that God does not see a seed of hope that if we repent and turn to him and allow his mercy to come in, it will heal and restore and renew and build up again. God is definitely a God of mercy. I think we also see going through there that God is a God of wrath. God is a God of justice. God is a God of details. And God wanted obedience and he wanted them to specifically follow instructions, even for Moses. The first time he told him to hit the rock and the next time he told him to to just speak to the rock. And it was that small little deviation from exactly what God said that kept Moses himself from the promised land. I think we need to balance this thing that God is a God of mercy with he's also a God of detail and he's a God that wants... Wants us to pay attention. But he is a God of mercy. It's only by the mercies of God that even we are here today. It's it's only God's mercy that helps us through the hard times and the hard deep journeys and the valleys that we need to go through. It's the merciful hand of God that helps us come on through those times. I think we could all relate story after story of the great mercy of God and the strength of God when we we've messed up so bad and we just we don't know if we'll ever be able to make it. <clears throat> There's another time when when the children of Israel were uh, were out there and they were going through and they just there was a few that rose up against Moses they said who are you and i think sometimes this this small de- detail of of uh lack of respect for authority i think many times sometimes we we live in a in a, in a in an era of time when <clears throat> when it's, as, it's probably as, I don't know, is it worse now than it's ever been, but it's an era of time when nobody wants to be told what to do. Who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you? Who, who, who appointed you leader over us? Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about the big hole that opened up underneath a few of the children of Israel, and they fell in there, or just it said the, open, the earth opened up, and they those that rebelled against Moses and Aaron, they fell in the hole. And in the German, somebody can correct me if you know your German better than I do, but in German it actually says that the earth opened up and they fell headfirst or headlong into hell. Could mean they fell into their grave. Hell and the grave is kind of an interchangeable word in the King James Version and even in the Martin Luther translation of the German. So I'm not sure, but did the earth open up and they actually fell into the burning pit of hell or did the earth open up and they fell into their grave? But the judgment of God was tremendously severe upon those that did not respect the calling and authority that God placed upon Moses and Aaron. God is, God is not only a God of detail, but he's a God of authority. And as God invests his authority upon people, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. But it's also almost a dreadful thing because there's a responsibility that goes with that, not only for those called into authority, but also those that are under that authority. Somehow... There's something there that I think we as human beings, we miss sometimes. As a church, we can miss that so easily. And it is extremely important as we go through the, let's say we go through the wilderness of training our children, raising up a family. And I want to be careful how I say this because I have failed in this in many times. But if you do not respect the authority that is over your head, you eliminate your position of authority under from those coming behind you. Dear sisters, as you are under the authority of your husband, dear wives, if you somehow... Do not find the grace to reverence that authority. You totally, almost totally eliminate the power and authority that you have over your children. And I wanna, I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule. But that is a, that is a, is a thing. If you Go back and study what happened in the children of Israel as they sidestep that principle of respect for authority. Didn't even Aaron's sister. When she rebelled against. It and She was uh, turned into a leper I think. I didn't study that out exactly. But. God is, a, God is a God of authorities. And as we go through this wilderness road. We need to understand that. And as we bow our hearts under authority. It gives us power and authority over those that we have authority over. When Jesus was was here on earth and the centurion came to him and his son was dying or was sick of an ailment and he told Jesus, he said, you know, I'm a, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. I'm a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. Just say the word. You just have to say the word. You don't even, I don't, I'm not worthy that you come and, and come under my roof. But I recognize this position of authority that you have with the father. And you can just say the word and my son, son or daughter, son, right? My son will be healed. <clears throat> and I know we can take that out of context and we can we can lord it over each other and we can try to convince people that I'm the authority and all of that and all of that. But there is a way, there is a biblical way to walk under authority that brings blessing and honor and healing and grace when we go through any valley, any journey through any valley that we're going through. If we follow these, these principles and we learn these lessons, it can make a big difference. <clears throat> All of us know about the, uh, the Sahara Desert in Africa. If you look at the African continent on a map, the whole top part is the Sahara Desert. It goes from the Atlantic Ocean all the way over to the Red Sea, all the way across the top of the Africa is the Sahara Desert. It's desert. It's dry. It's barren. It's desert. And right underneath that, if you look on the map, it goes all the way, all the way uh, across the Sahara Desert. There's a band across there called the Sahel. Sahel. Am I pronouncing that correct? You Africans that have been there, you know this better than I do probably. But this area is a region where where the... It's between where it's green and where it's brown. It's a transition area between desert and the desert is moving down or was moving down and down and down. And this Sahel area is the transition is getting drier and drier and drier, and the water table is dropping in the Sahel all the way across. And it goes, it goes through all those little states or whatever Africa calls them, Niger and, uh, and um, Chad, and I'm not sure which ones, all, but it crosses all of them. And there's a man that was born in 1946 by the name. He was in the Burkina Faso, There's a little, a little uh, country there by. Um, it's over toward western Africa. <clears throat> and the Sahel was is going right over the top of that, and it was getting drier and drier. And this young man by the name of Yakoba So. So, so, I could say it, so, Sawaduga, Sawaduga. Am I half right, you African people? Jacoba Sawaduga was born in 1946. And as a young man, he had a vision to stop the desert. He saw his grandparents, he saw his parents trying and trying to be... They were little peasant farmers. And it was getting drier and drier and drier in this Sahel area. And he got a vision. He said he he has a vision to stop the desert. That it doesn't have to be... He was convinced that it was because of poor, poor farming practices of burning off the vegetation, of overgrazing, of being irresponsible with the land. He was convinced that it was their own doings that was bringing the Sahara Desert down into Africa. And he vowed that he would, would one day he would stop the desert. And many people called him a madman and said he's losing his mind. But he would go out there. He had a small plot of land. I think it was about 30 acres at the time, or 20 or 30 acres. I, it's not real clear. I have studied some, and then later it seemed to have grown. But anyway, he went out there in the dry season when it was dry and hot and dusty, and he would take a hoe, and he would go out there, and he would dig a little pit. Every two foot, he would dig a pit and he would go across his land and he would dig these little pits on the on the downhill slope he would go in there and dig these little pits he had found some information of some ancient farming practices for the desert and they call them the zia pits and the pit isn't really deep it's just a half a gallon size or maybe a gallon size but they would go along and they would dig these so he would go out there and he would go out in the dry season to dig these pits. And everybody said, you are crazy, you are mad, You are there's something wrong with you. And he would go along and he would dig these little pits. And he would put a handful of compost in each pit. And he would drop a few seeds in there. And it was dry and dusty and the ground was hard and dry. Rebecca, you know what it's like out there. In the Niger, Niger, how do you say that? Niger. There you go. But he discovered that if he would dig these little pits, then when the rains came, and the rains would wash the silt all off of the off of the hillside, or even even in the more flatter areas, but the water would just run off. The dry and and parched ground, most of the water just kept on running and would take what little nutrients was left in the soil, would wash it with it. And soon it was gone, and the sun came out, and it soon got dry again. And so he discovered that if he would dig these little pits, these little pits would catch a little bit of water as the water ran down through there. And that little bit of compost attracted termites. And the termites would dig deep holes down in the ground. And so when this water would catch in this little basin, and it would soak into the ground, and this compost, it would hold enough of the little silt and run off and... and, it would hold enough moisture in there that his plants would grow. And so he he turned his own little plot of ground into a lush forest. He would plant trees in there, plant trees and plant uh, grasses and plant millet and sorghum and all that. He would plant in there and he was amazed at how this stuff would grow when there was a little bit of compost and there was a little bit of water and there was a tree beside it to give a little bit of shade he could make a crop and he, he kept trying and trying to convince people and finally he got, he got more people excited after a, a number of years <clears throat> They would also, another thing they would do is they would pick up the rocks in the fields and they would lay rocks in and make little rock terraces like we do in our fields here. But they would lay these little rocks, just small rocks, big rocks, but they would make a row of rocks. And those would also help stop the runoff. And it would help slow down the water so more of it could soak in. And they discovered, even today yet, they discovered that they can make a 500% increase in yields if they do that. And so he went from village to village trying to teach the people how to dig the Zia pits and how to put in compost and how to plant trees. And soon they, less and less people, called him mad. And he would slowly but surely, he got his people convinced that they need to do that. And today, 30 years later, it's, uh, Wikipedia says there's tens of thousands of acres, no, tens of thousands of hectares are lush and green in that area because of this one man's idea and one man's vision. By the way, a hectare is 2.47 acres. So it's more than tens of thousands of acres that were transformed with one man's vision in the wilderness. When everybody else was saying, we're going to get out of here before we starve. It's getting drier and drier and drier and the water level is dropping and dropping, and dropping. And they said in the year 2009, which is 10 years ago, the water level in that area had risen 16 feet on the average, some places more, some places a little less. But the average water table level came up 16 feet by Sawadugas, Zia pits. Don't tell me one person can't make a difference. There's another man that found himself in an extreme wilderness position or situation. He was born in Australia. And when he was a baby, when he was born, they realized there's no hands, there's no feet. There's no arms and there's no legs. He's limbless. And they had no clue why God allowed this little boy to, to be born without limbs. His dad was a pastor. They were God-fearing people. They had left another country because of religious persecution and had gone to Australia. And here they had this little baby, And they called him Nick. His name is Nick Vujic. He faced many hard obstacles in life. Here he is, a little boy without limbs. And he's in school and people mock him and call him an alien and on and on and on and on and just pick on him. And the only way he could get around was, was ride around on a skateboard He did have one, he does have one little leg that's about six inches long with a big toe on it. That's all he has, and he can use that to propel himself on his skateboard. And today he's almost a household name around the world. When he was eight years old, he was so depressed and so completely in the wilderness that he almost wanted to commit suicide but God brought him out of that and he he later in later years then he got born again and, and he got a vision of the land of Canaan he got a vision of reaching lost people with the, with the gospel and today he's the uh, the president or the founder of a ministry they live in California of life without limbs, and they travel around the globe sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since he's such a unique little creature that only weighs about 70 pounds and only stands about waist high because he has no arms and no legs, somehow that the authorities in many of these countries kind of feel sorry for the little unique fella and and they let him come in and he can preach the gospel in places where you and I could never preach the gospel. Praise God! Not only is that, but he has somehow, he has got a hold of a faith in God. He has, he's securely fixed on the I am and he sees the, he sees the goal and he has his eyes fixed on the goal and he's not giving up. And somehow God has, has blessed this man with, with visions and dreams and, and, and he has conquered great things. Today he's actually married and has four children. The last two are twin girls. He married a girl from, I think her, her background is Hawaiian. You all probably know the story of Nick Vujic. If you don't, you need to go find it. You need to get the book. You need to read it. It's a tremendous inspiration of how God can carry someone through the hard times and, and come out on the other side. One of the key things that Nick Vujic learned young in his life that he is not alone. He don't need to stand alone. He said at one time he was fiercely independent. He had to prove that he can brush his own teeth. He had to prove that he can get out of bed by himself, had to prove that he could put on a T-shirt without arms and legs. He had to prove that he could ride and swim and skydive and do all those things by himself without help. And he said one day he realized, you know what? My life would be way more productive if I just let people help me. And I think that he today has a live-in caregiver that helps him get out of bed and dresses him and adjusts his collar and gets him ready for the day. It's just like Moses, you can't do everything yourself. And if God gives you a limitation in this area, just let someone help you. And together we can do great things for God. We can overcome the wilderness road. We can overcome the biggest obstacle if we stand together and just let someone help us. But it's really sad how many people face tremendous high and deep and tremendous valleys and hard trials, and they just hunker down and just say, I'll get it, I got it, don't worry, brother, I'm Okay. I'm okay, I'll make it, I'll, I'll carry this, this is my burden, I'll carry it. And Nick, today, his own testimony says, if I, if I would have never opened up and let people help me and just ask people that if I can talk to them, he said, I'd never made it. It's the help of others. Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, verse 25, he said, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. I think the scriptures would echo in many other places, we can't be divided. We, We cannot stand alone. We cannot stand alone. Life is not about me, it's about us. And I think many times that is one of the key things that will help us make it through the hard, hard roads if we just realize that it's about us. It's not just about me. Yacouba Sawaduga said, you cannot just stay in a corner if you're going to help the human race. And he realized that It would never work for him to march all across all those little hillsides and all those deserts of the Sahel and dig all those pits by himself and plant all those seeds. He would never get it done. He needs to go out and, and get this village convinced that this is what they need to do. And then he needs to go to this village And help them see that this works. And then he went to this village. And today he is 76 years old. And he's old. And he's laid it down. And his son rose up in his stead. And now his son goes around and goes from village to village. And convinces, trying to convince those people that live in the Sahel area. That we can push back the Sahara Desert. And we can dig these little Zia pits and we can put a little handful of compost in that hole and we can plant a seed and, and we can do another one and we can do another one and we can make a difference and we can push the desert back. Amen. Nick Vujic says, you got to get out of your bubble. You just live in that little bubble and you're protected in your little bubble. He said, you got to get out of your bubble. But I'd like to, if we are ever tempted to just hide, hide in our little bubble, hide in our little corner somewhere because the situation is so bad and we just are, we're just just about ready to give up and we're just going to hunker down in our own little corner and we just, we're just going to hide in our own little bubble. I would like for you to get this picture. If you're ever tempted to just say, you know, it doesn't, I, I can't make a difference and I'm not going to make it and I'm just going to hide. I'd like for you to get this picture in your mind of the year 1985 in the Sahel area. You live there, and it's getting drier and drier and drier, and the water table is going down, and the Sahara is moving toward your village. And all you can see is the dry, barren land with dust blowing and the hot, dry air. And in the distance, you see... A small army of black little farmers, shoulder to shoulder, out there in the desert with hoes and picks and any tool they have to dig a little hole. And there's another group coming right behind them with with buckets full of little compost and they put a little handful in each hole. about two foot apart and they're marching like an army and they're covering this whole hillside and the wind's blowing and the desert air is hot and dry and they're putting a little seeds few seeds in each hole and there's another group over here on the side and it's the mockers and they're saying you're mad our wells are drying up the water level is dropping and I am leaving before I starve to death. And in the wood in the dusty storm out here you see you see these this army coming, digging their little holes. Jacoba's team marches on planting trees and other seeds. And now fast forward thirty years. And you find tens of thousands of hectares of land in forest or productive land and the water level up 16 foot. One young man with a vision in 30 years. Professors from Amsterdam and many other places came and said, "Savaduga." did more single-handedly for water conservation and soil conservation in the Sahel area than all other national and international scientists put together to change and move back the desert. Saladuga did more by himself, convincing other people. He had other people to help him, but it was his idea, and he went out and tried to convince everybody. He was basically the, the, the platform that changed this. It was a professor from Amsterdam, went over to see this, and he said, you know, this man has done more single-handedly than all national and international scientists and researchers have done together. And you see in your mind, you see the green trees and you see the the millet and the sorghum growing. And you see acres and hectares and hectares and hectares of of land that is now feeding people. They say wherever they implement his ideas and consistently work on that, that those areas have food enough and to share. They've actually made a movie about Sawaduka in 2010. It's a documentary of the man that pushed back the desert. I haven't watched it, but I think I'd like to. Just as an inspiration of what one person can do, if they get out of the shadows, get out of their bubble, and work together and apply the principles and the lessons that we can learn from the children of Israel going through the wilderness and the desert. May God bless you.